Welcome to the Morning News podcast for Monday, April 13th. We begin with a look at the announcement that OPEC is dropping production by 10 million barrels per day. We speak with Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken on why the move may not be enough to bolster Canada's energy industry. Next, we get details on the latest poll from Ipsos. CEO Daryl Bricker shares his thoughts on if social distancing will be the new normal as we move past the pandemic. Then we catch up with Dr. Ted Jablonski for our weekly visit. Dr. J talks about the role our family physicians play during this coronavirus crisis. It was a grim milestone south of the border over the weekend with the U.S. topping 500,000 cases of COVID-19. We get the latest from Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. It's been a complete change from the way we used to do our jobs. We get suggestions from an organizational psychologist on what we should not be doing while working from home. And finally, it's the story of a local business doing what they can to help Canadians during a time of crisis. We'll speak with Dragon and co-owner of the Minhas Brewery, Manjeet Minhas, on her newest venture, producing hand sanitizer. 8-11 on the morning news. The OPEC oil cartel has agreed to cut nearly 10 million barrels a day to help boost global energy prices. But is it enough? The federal government is applauding the deal. But as our chief political correspondent David Aiken reports, the deal by the world's major oil producers may not go far enough. Good morning, David. Yeah, good morning, guys. And, of course, it wasn't just uh, the federal government, Seamus O'Regan, the Natural Resources Minister, but also Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. I mean, uh, you know, as he pointed out, Russia and Saudi Arabia started this oil price war fight, and they had to finish it. They kind of finished it. So Kenny will take what uh, he can get. Uh, a cut uh, is obviously better than no cut. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, as I you just played that clip on the news. The cut is only 10 million barrels a day, and demand has fallen 20 million barrels a day. So we're still making a lot more oil than the world needs right now. And of course, the world doesn't need oil because we're not driving, we're not flying. You know, we are going to be at uh, some point down the road. Uh, and, you know, looking at uh, the, the market reaction as soon as this deal was announced, prices went up initially, then sort of fell back. And, you know, right now there's, uh, you know, they're, they're not they're not moving anywhere near where Alberta needs them to be, let alone other global producers. Certainly one of the important issues going on in our country right now, but this is another one. Federal government, it looks like, may be asked to provide some relief for the country's municipalities. Vancouver's mayor putting his hand out saying that, you know, maybe some of the people here can't pay their property taxes. What do we do? Yeah, and I think this is going to be a bigger issue, and it's uh, it's one that provincial governments and federal governments are going to have to think about. So it started yesterday uh, in Vancouver. The city of Vancouver did a survey of its own residents, and uh, one of the results of that survey was it found out that about 25% of people, again, this is Vancouver, uh, were indicating they were not going to be able to pay their property tax bill for the rest of the year. And as, as I'm sure everybody knows... Um, the provincial government can borrow its way out of a crisis. The federal government can borrow its way out of crisis. But uh, cities and towns cannot. They mm-hmm. have to, by law, basically balance the budget every year. So they can't go into deficit financing. And if their revenue, revenues are drying up, they're kind of saying, well, what are we supposed to do? Um, I'm pretty sure Mayor Nenshini has sort of talked about some of the pressure that the city of Calgary's finances are under. Other big city mayors are going to be doing the same thing. And so I think this is an issue that is increasingly going to be on the radar of provincial authorities and then, by definition, federal authorities, because, I mean, the bill could be a big one if uh, if all municipalities uh, are, are having some kind of financial struggles. Mm-hmm. It may be too much for provincial treasuries. Yeah, I think Vancouver first out the gate. Finally, we have an update on uh, the investigation into the downing of Ukrainian International Flight 752. What can you tell us about that this morning, David? 
Yeah, so a little more frustration and delay for uh, all of those Canadians. Of course, many Canadians had friends and families of the victims of that uh, Ukrainian Flight 752. Um, here's where we're at. Last week, the Iranians said, okay, we're ready to let the West, essentially, take a look at the flight recorders, the black boxes. And Iran had said we could take these things to Ukraine or to France, and that's where we would be analyzing the data on, on these flight recorders. Canada's Transportation Safety Board is one of the world's experts in analyzing data on these flight recorders, and Canadian, Canadian investigators are going to be part of the team looking at it. But Canada and others saying, is this really the time to be putting people in airplanes and sending them overseas to complete this investigation? And there was all-party agreement that, no, it is not the time to be doing that. Let's pause this investigation. We'll pick it up again once we're able to uh, lift some of these travel restrictions. And Canada and others also, you know, reminding Iran, listen, a pause doesn't mean you're off the hook here. We're going to look at these data recorders. We have to see them. You have to live up to your end of the bargain. It's just going to take a few more months until that investigation can get back on the rails. Still lots going on. Thank you, David, for the update. Appreciate your time. Thanks, guys. Cheers. That is David Aiken, Global's chief political correspondent. Seeing still, uh, you know, as we're looking at the numbers of COVID-19 uh, across the country, checking this out, uh, Canada, 24,383 total confirmed cases. Globally, over 1.8 confirmed cases right now. We have 24,000 cases in our uh, nation. Uh, down in the U.S., over 22,000 deaths and i was uh, shocked because we talked about the senior care facilities here in our nation um hit hard it's uh, basically out of those twenty-two thousand, over 2000 are seniors uh, that were housed and residing in care facilities so we're really seeing and i'm sure those numbers are, are going to continue to grow mm -hmm. the impact that it's having on our seniors residents is something we've kind of a thread we've talked about this morning as a post-pandemic how do we approach seniors care but the numbers are staggering and hopefully fingers crossed uh, we're getting close to peak here in our nation i know certainly out west it seems to be oh, we're a little better off at this point and mm -hmm. an indication of that is uh, the Alberta government and Jason Kenney announcing the donations of the PPE uh, gear uh, to uh, provinces in need across our uh, country as well. 6.48 on the morning news. It has been one month since the World Health Organization declared the novel coronavirus a global pandemic. Since then, Canadians have gone from their version of normal to whatever historians will call today. Uh, we're joined by Ipsos CEO Daryl Bricker for his commentary on the current situation. Good morning, Daryl. Thanks for having me on. Daryl, do you think they will call it the the new normal? Uh, well, that, that's why I put a question mark. In that. <laughs> we have a lot of we have a lot of people out there who are commentators and prognosticators suggesting that it might be. Uh, but the truth is, we really don't know. Um, what we've seen is a you know a massive disruption in the way that we live our lives, a massive disruption in the economy, certainly a lot of fears about uh, what's going on uh, with, with the virus itself. So is it going to lead to long-term changes? Hard to say at this stage. What would you say that we have learned from the polling, the amazing polling that Ipsos has done through this pandemic to date? Uh, the quickness of the changes that can take place when you run into an event like this, uh, when uh, Canadians are confronted with, um, uh, uh, you know, an existential uh, crisis like the one that we're going through right now, one that's outside of our living memory. I mean, nobody's ever been through anything like this. Uh, it's it's amazing to watch how quickly the numbers move. Uh, everything, for example, like uh, uh, our level of fear about job loss. I mean, back in 2000. 
2008, 2009, which was the last big recession, about 25% of us thought we or somebody in our family was, was going to lose their job. Today, it's over 60% feeling oh. that way. Uh, and I've never seen anything like this. I've been doing this since the mid-1980s. The numbers are just bouncing off the charts. But I should also say that uh, what's going on in Canada is not unique. I mean, we're seeing this all over the world because Ipsos is polling all over the world on this. And uh, something happening so fast. I mean, this has happened within a month and so universally. Uh, we've never seen We've seen tons of polls when it comes to, you know, uh, Canadians and uh, their thoughts on their politicians over the years. Uh, but something new for you and uh, what you do in your business is uh, the strength of these polls as far as the numbers that are coming in for our leaders. Yeah, uh, we're seeing leaders, uh, all of our national leaders, uh, way above where they've, they've been polling prior to the crisis. And, and for all, all of them, the, the highest numbers they've ever received. Uh, so for the prime minister, for example, is at 74. Even back in 2015, when he was in that extended honeymoon after that election, he never really got much over the mid-50s. I mean, he's 20 points higher than that right now. Uh, my, the, the, uh, the, the leader of the leaders right now is uh, Premier Legault from, uh, from the province of Quebec, who's at 96% in terms of public approval. I thought it was a mistake, but I saw other <laughs> polls showing the same, same thing, and it was like we were doing a poll in North Korea. I mean, it's... Uh, unbelievable that's crazy what, what are you going to look at next daryl because i mean there are so many questions you can ask but what will you just try to determine next as you, you continue to roll your polling out well, I think the cracks are going to start to form. Um, the, uh, the the point at which Canadians are going to start to say, okay, um, when are we going to move on here? When are we going to start getting back to whatever it is that we're going to be in the future? And um, you, you can't p- keep people you know, indefinitely frozen at home. You're going to start to see some rejection of that kind of thing. But then we're also going to see some positive things where people are going to start saying, I'm confident to go back out or I'm confident to do certain types of things. We're going to be looking for those tipping points to see uh, what the timing is going to be for change. And every day in your world is different because uh, things change every day. Your team, um, I'm sure many are working from home, if not most, um, are generating these polls uh, daily, if not uh, uh, hourly, it seems to be the case. Yeah, we're putting out a lot of stuff right now because it's a very interesting time. And it's an important time to be holding up a mirror to Canadians. Just, you know, because we always have people out there saying, I think I know what Canadians think. Well, we ask. We ask Canadians what we think, and all we, all, they, all we do is report back what we find. Lots of confusion, lots of questions out there, so we thank you for bringing us the answers to a lot of those questions. Thanks for joining us, Daryl. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That's Daryl Bricker, Ipsos CEO. Coming up to 719, always uh, happy to have Dr. Ted Jablonski. We call him Dr. J, our on-call family physician, but particularly during this time of the COVID-19 pandemic. We have an interesting question for Dr. J this time out because obviously all eyes on health and the well-being of everyone in our city and in society. But what is the role now of your family physician, physician during the pandemic? For that, we turn to Dr. Jablonski. Good morning. Good morning. So there's a, there's a good question. So what's actually happened in the past week that is probably not that well known to the public is that there uh, have been pathways developed to try to manage people who have COVID or COVID suspect. Mm-hmm. And these pathways definitely utilize the family physician uh, very heavily. So if I can, in this a briefest summary, mm-hmm. if you're deemed to be high risk or you're positive, uh, one uh, primary care physician should be calling you every day for 14 days in a row. If you're deemed to be more average risk or 
uh, perhaps not that sick, then that would be every other day for a week. If you're deemed to be low risk or not COVID, then the case is closed. But what's happening now, so if you phone HealthLink, um, you will be diverted to um, a sort of a COVID clinic algorithm, which will incorporate this. So on the long weekend, this was quite a challenge because all the family doctor's offices were closed. So we were just running as best we could through um, the primary care network clinics, the after hours clinics and managing all of these calls. Uh, as this week unfolds, uh, these cases will be put back to the family doc who hopefully will be able to manage um, uh, as I mean, the clinics, some are closed, some are open, there's skeletal staff. Most physicians are doing virtual visits uh, either at home or in the clinics. Uh, so we're hoping that these calls and these pathways can continue to uh, to unfold as this week comes on. Dr. J, that's a lot of time to take to pick up the yeah. phone and make all those phone calls when the doctors are needed to do other doctory things. Yeah, so it will be. <laughs> so right now, it seems to be the best use of, of our resources. Um, and I'm going to say I was on the phone all weekend uh, doing this work, and the public is incredibly grateful, uh, and they found it to be really, really helpful. Um, and we were able to do uh, virtually 90, I would say 99% of the work was by phone. And it was very rare that we actually had to see a patient or deal with them in person. It was all by the phone. But yes, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of, uh, it's challenging for sure. Um, the emergency rooms are still managing. The hospitals are still managing. So I think this is an Alberta phenomenon. I think we have been able to flatten the curve enough that our system is still working. And hence why we can do what we're doing with these pathways. Mm. If it could change, if the emergency rooms get um, overwhelmed, uh, then there will be a trickle-down effect where we will have to manage these folks in the community. But that's yet to come. So far, so good. Question for you. I know you can't speak to every office in the city, but my wife, for example, wants to get my toddler checked out. Nothing too serious, but it's something that she wants to address is this a matter of uh, taking our own care in our hands? If she could call the office, can you request? And maybe your office is still showing, uh, you know, seeing patients rather. Can you request a virtual visit? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So, so all the visits, like if we have things scheduled from the past that will be converted to a virtual visit. So me personally, I'm telling my patients, don't cancel appointments. <laughs> we'll keep doing them because the last thing you want is everyone to say, oh, you know, I, I can just wait for three months. In three months, we're going to... <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be creamed with everyone waiting three months. So we're trying to still do whatever we can. And it's amazing. And again, the impossibility of, of a month ago, what we could not possibly do by telephone or by a virtual visit, say, um, you know, FaceTime or Skype or, or Zoom or whatever any clinics are using. What we what was impossible a month ago is we're doing it every day now without any issue whatsoever. Um, and I would say the vast majority of, of issues can be managed without being in person. So we're keeping that so, uh, social isolation that you can stay at home but still have your problems dealt with. We're faxing things to pharmacies. Pharmacies are delivering. Like It's amazing how the system has shifted to make sure this works and it's safe for everybody. Thanks for the update, Dr. J. Always appreciate it. Okay, you betcha. That's our on-call family physician, Dr. Ted Jablonski. 709 now, the U.S. surpassing that 500,000 mark of confirmed cases of COVID-19. Has the U.S. reached the peak, though? We're joined this morning by Global Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini with the latest coronavirus update from south of the border. Good morning, Reggie. 
Good morning. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. You know, some models suggesting the U.S. may have reached the peak of cases this weekend. Is that what's happening? Are we seeing signs of improvement yet? Well, look, so there are signs of improvement across the country, notably in areas like Michigan and in New York State. But the issue with these peaks is that the U.S. government is using one model, which showed that the U.S. could reach a peak over the weekend. The issue is other states are using their own modeling, and they put peaks potentially weeks, if not months, down the line. Like here in D.C., our peak is not expected until the end of May, if not into early June. But where peaks appear to have uh, already occurred and potentially could be in a plateau right now, New York City, uh, their number of hospitalizations are down. Their intubation units are down. Their ICU admissions are down. But the death toll is increasing uh, daily. We had five days in a row of deaths over 700 in New York State. And just over the weekend, New York City was reporting 300-plus deaths on Saturday and 400 deaths-plus on Sunday. So the peak may be here, but the devastation will Mm. continue. You know, uh, social distancing, uh, having those uh, distance uh, measures, if you will, relax. The president has been pushing for it. When could this happen? Is it even feasible in the next uh, couple of weeks or so? Well, I mean, originally the president wanted the country reopened by, or quote-unquote reopened, by the weekend that just passed, and he's now saying that potentially May 1st. His own health health experts are saying this is not a switch. You can't just flick a light switch and the country is going to simply reopen. We also have to remember governors are up, it's up to governors to reopen the economies in their own states, and if they don't feel that they're going to be ready for it, if they don't feel that the virus is under control, the states are going to remain locked down despite the president's calls to have the economy reopened. This is going to set up a new battle between the White House and individual governments uh, across each state uh, because they're going to have competing ideologies as to what they actually want to do going forward. And uh, that leads me, Reggie, to my next question, because, you know, Donald Trump is famous for firing anybody who doesn't sort of get on board with him. And in a tweet over the weekend, he hinted he might fire his top infectious disease expert, Anthony Fauci, who has really been the voice of reason in the U.S. of late. Yeah, I mean, not only is he the voice of reason, he is the expertise that the U.S. has come to rely on for more than three decades. I mean, this was the man who was at the face of SARS, at the face of H5N1, and now, uh, you know, here we are with him dealing with the coronavirus in the United States. And this all came about because the president retweeted uh, a network who's friendly to him, uh, where, you know, the very end of it said hashtag fire Fauci. So the question right now is, did the president read through the tweet or was he just kind of trigger happy to see a network that's favorable to him tweeting something nice about him and he just decided to press retweet? Uh, it, it, you know, it's worth noting that the president has grown frustrated with Dr. Fauci over the last couple of weeks because Fauci oftentimes undercuts what the president has to say. And he did it again over the weekend uh, on CNN saying uh, that if the U.S. would have acted earlier in this crisis, more lives could have been saved. And that, again, goes against the president saying that he's done everything right. And even if 100,000 people die in a best-case scenario, he'll call that a win. Where does he go without Anthony Fauci? Would there be a replacement or would the president handle these uh, medical matters on his own? Well, it's hard to see what happens. If something like a firing of Fauci takes place, uh, Dr. Deborah Burks, who's kind of the second face of the medical team on this coronavirus task force, may be left in charge, but it's hard to see how she might not walk based on the fact that, you know, she has worked so closely with Dr. Fauci for years and years now. Uh, but also remember last week, the president said that he wanted to start putting together a second task force that's going to look at reopening the economy. One could argue that if the president decides to get rid of his leading health expert, he may simply just start 
start going towards the economic side of this, looking past the data and science that, you know, he's been relying on from these doctors and simply say, well, we don't need them anymore because we're under control and we're going to look at reopening the economy. And then he can potentially take someone like Dr. Fauci and turn that person into a scapegoat so that the blame can be placed on that person, not on the own shortcomings of the administration. Oh, let's switch over to uh, the politics in the United States right now and in terms of the uh, Democratic race uh, leading up to the election, which will not be moved. So where is Joe Biden these days? Was he making himself known over the weekend at all? Joe Biden has been doing a very good job of keeping himself uh, kind of front and center now that Bernie Sanders is out of the picture and he is the presumed front runner for the Democrats. He's already had a phone call with President Trump. We've known that for a couple of weeks, trying to lay out what he thinks the president should do to reopen the economy, uh, having worked through a, a global health crisis when he was in the Obama administration. He's now actively talking about how his own plans would go forward to reopen the, the economy, how slowly and methodically uh, he would have to do this in order to get the country back. Back to where it was and it's kind of asking this question right now of if he is doing this if he's kind of competing with president trump uh you know just kind of in a shadow position does that better suit him for the election in november because do the american people want to see somebody who feels their pain when they're voting for someone or does the, the american economy simply want a president who's saying yeah everything is fine uh don't pay attention to anything else i think joe biden is potentially putting himself in a good position here as this race really starts to heat up have we heard anything else as far as the timeline or, or the different events coming up between now and November being changed or affected due to the COVID-19 pandemic? In, in terms of the election, uh, uh, primaries are still being postponed right now, except for that one that happened in, in Wisconsin. Primaries are still being postponed through June. What we don't know is, gonna, is what will happen beyond June if this crisis is still uh, holding a tight grip on certain states, if they're going to have to start pushing those further down the line, potentially butting up against the conventions in August. Democrats are pushing to have mail-in ballots kind of become a broad thing across the United States. But the president has come out to say, look, mail-in ballots create fraud, and he believes Republicans would suffer if if Democrats were able to use mail-in ballots, should be noted the president used a mail-in ballot for the Florida primary. Uh, he requested one, at least. Uh, but there are still a lot of unanswered questions as to how this is going to play out going forward. If we can get through the conventions and there's no problem, November's probably okay. If we get to the conventions in August and this is still an issue and people can't gather, it really does put a question on how does this election go forward, particularly if people aren't able to cast a ballot. Reggie, next steps for Donald Trump. Anything shaping up this week or is it sort of status quo or our new normal at this point? You know, it's this five o'clock press conference. We have to wait to see what the president is doing. Uh, the press uh, release came out yesterday. We are expecting to get a coronavirus task force update from the president today. We'll see if he becomes more combative with the media. We've seen that the president does these press briefings and kind of steps aside for a little bit, uh, leaves, and then lets the rest of the experts deal with some of the questions. Uh, you know, the president really is trying to work hard to ensure that he can get the economy reopened. He needs it for uh, his reelection. Outside of that, it's simply a day in, day out, and we'll have to see what happens with Dr. Fauci if that actually turns into something got about 20 seconds left reggie just a quick question about the seniors homes we're hearing uh you know devastation on our side of the border and i'm reading reportedly over 2,000 deaths in the nursing homes and seniors facilities in the usa uh, that's a tough one and a tough pill to swallow i would think 
it, it's it's a big deal for uh, for Americans because they're grappled with the question of do we pull our family members out of these homes and bring them to our own home or do we have to leave them there because it's simply going to be the best case scenario for you know the rest of society and for the rest of that family. It's something that families are dealing with. It's something that health services across the country are dealing with hospital systems and the Department of Health and Human Services. It's something that you know this is going to be one of those learning moments mm-hmm. down the line when this is cleared. How do we better equip uh, those who are the most vulnerable to falling ill to one of these viruses? Mm-hmm. How do we deal with that going down the road? Uh, big questions for sure. Stay safe, Reggie. Thank you. We'll talk to you thank, again soon. I have no you. doubt. That's Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent. 749. Now, we spoke earlier about managers having to step up their game, as most of us are working from home these days. We're now talking about other things that we can and shouldn't perhaps be doing while we're working from home. We're talking this morning with organizational psychologist and president of Work Evolution, Dr. Laura Hambly. Hi, doctor. Hi, how are you, Sue? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. Let's talk about things that we should perhaps not be doing while we're working at home during this COVID-19 outbreak, things that can help us. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So we came up with four uh, main things. And the first one is not to sweat the small stuff because all of us are in less than ideal conditions right now. We're under a lot of stress and uncertainty. And a lot of us are working at home, you know, over the last few weeks with no preparation. And with Work Evolution, we work with managers and we plan and prep for these sorts of remote work transitions. Um, But in this case, a lot of us are thrown in and we might have kids at home at the same time, a spouse at home, and it can really be uh, not ideal. So just admitting what's going on in our lives and taking the time at the beginning of calls and video chats just to talk about your working conditions and what's going well and what's a challenge and being kind and patient with one another and making light of these situations. If the dog barks right now, <laughs> you know, having a laugh about it, not, you know, being concerned about it. Mm-hmm. So we're not sweating the small stuff. That's number one. What's number two on your list? Uh, Number two is don't act like you're working from home. So dress (laughs) the part. (laughs) Because psychologically, there is a lot of benefit to dressing the part. Um, Getting up uh, at a certain time each day, looking the part, not spending your whole day in your pajamas, you know, like you're spending the day at home. No, you're actually at work. It just happens to be in your home. And be careful uh, not to do things like work in bed or work in the bathroom because 20% of people have heard a toilet flushing during a conference call. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that makes sense too. Okay, so what else can we do? One, uh, two or not do. (laughs) Not do. Uh, Don't go silent. And this goes for managers and employees. We're physically distanced, but we don't have to be socially distanced. And keeping the lines of communication wide open, using multiple forms of technology to keep in touch, turning on that video, which goes with my first point of dressing the part um, so that you can turn on video with confidence and you don't look like you're ready for bed. And communication delays, if you can't get back to something, uh, let the person know that you need more time. Um, Don't go silent because silence is the easiest way to kill trust when you're Mm. working remotely. Okay, we have about 20 seconds left. We want to get point number four in. Point four, bad posture. Move and stretch regularly. Take 30 minutes a day outside in your yard. Go for a walk. Um, Don't just uh, work at the dining room table in an awkward position all day because it's not going to be good for your physical health. Well, don't be a lump, I think is number four then. That makes sense. Thanks for joining <laughs> us. Appreciate your, your time and your tips. No problem. You take care. You too. That's Dr. Laura Hambly, president of Work Evolution and organizational psychologist.
848 on the morning news. Social distancing is extremely difficult, but especially not being able to connect with someone you love when they're sick or dying. Unfortunately, this is currently a heartbreaking reality for some people. We're joined by psychologist and founder of the Grief and Trauma Healing Center in Edmonton, Ashley Milkey. Am I saying your last name correctly, Ashley? You are, and good morning. Good morning. Ooh, first time lucky. Uh, <laughs> I can't imagine being in that position, you know, whether they're in hospital or in one of the seniors' care homes, or obviously if you've lost someone. What do you tell people in these situations? Oh, yes, my heart absolutely breaks for people who are in this situation because not only are we grieving our loved one who's dying or who's ill, we now have lost that capacity to connect in person, right? So it just adds that extra layer of grief and pain and so i firstly would just really want to acknowledge the unique emotions uh that these people are feeling that whatever they're experiencing is completely normal and natural and to give themselves permission to feel those emotions first and foremost you know, it's the, it's the physical touch, right? You, you want to be able to spend time with your person, to be able to touch them, and we're not used to not being able to do that. Oh, oh, absolutely. Like, we, we don't have that same sense of connection when we're not together. I mean, our brains uh, release oxytocin when we're in person, when we can make eye contact and when we can touch, which is the bonding hormone, so without having that capacity, it just further uh, um, increases our sense of isolation and disconnection from that loved one. I have found uh, talking to not only my family, my wife and my kids, I, I usually say things like, hey, we're all in this together. But at some point, it doesn't feel like it does it because it's a, a personal experience. Exactly. You know, as much as we can say this is a collective grieving experience, our individual experience is unique and individual to us. So how I might be feeling about this loss and this disconnection is going to be different from my sibling or my parent or a friend. So that can feel really isolating and overwhelming for us. So acknowledging those feelings, those emotions, that's one thing. Is, is there really anything that we can do? Is there, is there a way we can work around this that you know? Yes, I would say the next best alternative is to be able to communicate to our loved one. And fortunately, I mean, thank God for technology today. So if there's an opportunity to either communicate with them over FaceTime, if their loved one has that cognitive capacity to do so, that would be the next best option. It's to be able to communicate everything in their heart that they'd want to say. So all of the I love yous, thank yous, all of the acknowledgements around what they appreciate and value in the relationship, and anything else they'd want to say. If that is not an option, if their loved one doesn't have the cognitive capacity to connect, they can still send a video message that can be played uh, by the nursing staff or the healthcare staff. They can write a letter. Um, Really what we want to do is focus on completing our emotional relationship with our loved one. So saying all of the undelivered communications in that relationship. Um, And then if possible, having a transitional object brought into the facility if that's an option, if it would be safe to do so, like a blanket or maybe it's a Bible or maybe it's a family heirloom like a ring or a necklace, something that really represents the the relationship. Ashley, thank you very much for your time this morning. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That is Ashley Milkey, a psychologist and founder of the Grief and Trauma Healing Center.
in Edmonton. Over the weekend, co-owner of Minhas Microbrewery, Manjeet Minhas, tweeted out, Good news, our hand sanitizer production is going very well. We're on track to make about a million bottles. Joining us now is the Dragon's Den star herself, Minhas Microbrew co-owner, Manjeet Minhas. Hi, Manjeet. Hi, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. You wanted to make a big announcement today, so we wanted to let you do it. Well, thank you. Yes, uh, we have been working very diligently the last uh, three and a half weeks at the Minhas Distilleries to uh, get up and running to transition all of our breweries um, and retool them to make hand sanitizer and hand sanitizer alone and to make about a million bottles. And so we're really excited. Not only have we been fulfilling um, it for you know some essential service companies such as health authorities, emergency services, um, a lot of uh, companies who have frontline workers from grocery chains uh, to trucking companies, um, delivery companies. But now we are ready to um, let the public in on uh, getting some hand sanitizer in their hands and in their homes. Manjeet, I'm not sure if people understand. I mean, obviously, we call you a microbrewery, but your operation is bigger than the buildings we might see in Calgary. So I'm wondering where uh, the hand sanity was, was brewed because... Or do you call it brewing when it's hand sanitizer? <laughs> uh, was it at, at, at all of your facilities or just one of them? I know it's at all all of our facilities. Um, it has been and um, will continue to be as long as is needed. Um, it is a Health Canada approved formulation, um, and all of our sites are also. It is a WHO recommended formulation for the alcohol based hand uh, hand rub. So it is an eighty percent alcohol hand rub, um, which is what is recommended. So of course we uh, produce alcohol already, um, and so that one ingredient was something that we had. Uh, um, not only expertise, but access to, and a lot of it. Um, and then the other two ingredients um, in the hand rub, um, glycerol and the hydrogen peroxide, we um, did have to source and, and get in. Uh, but it's been amazing that all of our supply chain um, has really come together, including our suppliers from bottles to caps to labels. Um, and like I say, the government has been really good at Health Canada to get um, everybody, not only within our company, but all of our suppliers um, up and running and to be able to produce as quick as we can. Was it a tough decision, Manjeet, to say, okay, that's it for, for the booze. We're going to hold that completely and just roll out the hand sanny. Was that a tough one? Did you, what, did you, did you have to think about whether, oh, maybe you do 50-50 kind of thing? Uh, yeah, you know, definitely to begin with, um, we did think of all the different scenarios. But as soon as we did um, actually put them down on paper and see the really great need and we're fielding uh, a ton of phone calls, um, not only from friends but um, from organizations that we are close to, we decided uh, that we would um, really take this on. And if business suffers, which it will, uh, because we only keep um, stock for alcoholic products or our vodkas and our gins and our whiskey. Uh, for about three to four weeks in our warehouses, um, but the shelves will go dry, and that's okay because we are in a position um, to help, and I think that that is first and foremost um, for us um, at, at this moment. What's the greatest thing you learned? Because this is three weeks, it's 21 days when you, when you really get down to the brass tacks of it. Making that 180 turn, what's the greatest takeaway for you? Uh, the biggest takeaway has been um, definitely all of our staff's hard work um, to be able to learn how to reposition um, the facility and grateful that they are coming um, and putting not only all of their knowledge and experience but also learning, um, you know, when they're at home and on the off times um, in order to put this together to be able to get it out um, safely, correctly and into people's hands. So the greatest learning for me has been that we really are in 
in this all together. I don't think that this just is a hashtag. I think that it is um, really important at this time. And it's been really heartwarming to see everybody come together with their expertise. Um, we've had people reach out to us from, you know, perfume companies who have expertise in in um, in this uh, in formulation of things like this and, and uh, people to help us with labels um, to get the French and English mandatories on. And it's just an unbelievable, the outpouring um, of people who have been uh, volunteering their services to us um, in order to make sure that we can get this out to those who need it. Manji, what's it been for you like personally? I mean, you're a mom, you're a sister, you're a daughter. How's it been for you and your family? been challenging nonetheless. Yes, I, I have two little girls at home. Um, right now, actually, they just went downstairs because I told them mom needs some <laughs> quiet time for about 15 minutes. Um, so yeah, it is definitely been challenging. Um, you know, I have in-laws who have some health conditions um, we haven't been able to see in weeks now, which is hard on, on the kids and us and my parents. And yeah, it's it's definitely been um, hard and a new normal, even with kids having to learn from home and me having to, you know, try to teach them along with my husband. So it's, it, I think it, it definitely has been interesting and challenging, but we're taking it one day at a time um, and, and really remembering um, what we're all in this form. We're in it together to make sure that we all come out of this safe and happy and healthy. Manji, you mentioned in the transition, the spirits like the vodkas, for example, uh, shorter shelf life, three to four weeks. The all-important question what about the beer? Uh, is there going to be any beer shortages coming yes. from the in-house? Yes, no. The oh. beer is still brewing because, uh, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, I guess, both ways, depends which way you look at it, we cannot utilize those lines um, in order to fill hand sanitizer. So um, brew is still, beer is still being brewed, even though we have taken a lot of our top talent from our brewmasters, um, our assistant brewers, and a lot of our great foremen and, and mechanics from the beer side in order to, to put all that energy um, into the hand sanitizer side. But beer is still brewing, so okay. you can still find my crest and box on the shelves for a while to come. You worry me because we need both. We need the hand sani, but we need the other stuff. How many distilleries do you actually have? Because I know you've got one in Saskatchewan too, right? Right. Uh, yes, our family, um, so my brother, my dad, and I uh, have three in Calgary, Regina, and in Wisconsin in the United States. Okay. Do you think that maybe this could be something that you guys might branch out? This might influence the business to offer up a different product like the hand sani within your line? Because your line... When it comes to beer and the spirits is quite extensive. Could this be a, a side project moving ahead or something you'd look at uh, as far as that repurposing more on a permanent basis? We definitely um, have that on the table as an idea, and I think um, we definitely have determined that we will do this as long as is needed. And if that is longer, and there are other companies um, that are in this, you know, as their day-to-day business, um, they can keep up with supply. This definitely will be something that we are considering to add on to our line of products for a regular line. Do we buy the uh, Minhas uh, hand sani at the, the brewery itself, or do we get it just at the grocery store or how's that going to work? Uh, so both. Um, starting today at 10 o'clock um, from 10 to 6 um, every day, seven days a week, we will have it available at the Minhas Brewery and Distillery, which is in Northeast Calgary, uh, 1314 44th Avenue Northeast, and uh, it will be available, available to the public. There is a limit of four bottles per person so that everybody can get some, uh, and also it will be available and is starting to be available at all Safeways, Sobeys, and many other grocery um, outlets uh, as, uh, as the weeks go on. Thank you so much for your time and, uh, you know, tip of the hat for all the great work you guys are doing during Thank this time. Thank you so much.
That is Manjeet Minhas, dragon and co-owner of Minhas Brewery. Of course, you can find out more at www.minhasbrewery.com. Dry roads across the city and seeing light volume on those major routes. We do have a few closures that could cause you a slowdown, though, starting around the downtown core. Memorial Drive still down to a single lane, both east and westbound, uh, between 9th Street Northwest by the Peace Bridge and the Center Street Bridge. That's to accommodate pedestrians. Pedestrians also accommodated south of the downtown core. There's a right lane closure on northbound Elbow Drive between 38th Avenue Southwest and 5th Street through Mission. In the downtown core itself, construction has closed down 4th Avenue at 4th Street Southwest. The detour starts at 3rd Street, however, so keep an eye out for that. Ogden Road, we've got a lane realignment at 69th Avenue Southeast. Southbound drivers are using the northbound lanes and northbound drivers are off to the shoulder, which is also full of potholes. So take it nice and slow there. Speeds are down to 30 in that area. And also through the Southeast, construction has started up on northbound Deerfoot approaching Stony Trail. Speeds are down there. Enjoy Popeye's Butterfly Shrimp Tackle Box, a crispy tender shrimp, regular side, and a biscuit for just $6.99. Available from Popeye's through delivery, drive-thru, or pickup. For the 770 CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Brady Howard.